0: Are you in the market for a historic home in Westfield, New Jersey? It has six bedrooms, four baths, a basement where no one can hear you scream, and it comes with a mysterious stalker calling themselves the Watcher. Now, this person claims to be part of a family who's been watching the house and the people in it for more than a 100 years. When the house was sold to a young family with three kids, the watcher sent them ominous letters warning them against making renovations, telling them the house was hungry for young blood and threatening their lives. This story is the stuff of nightmares, and the town of Westfield is no stranger to the spooky and mysterious. Just blocks away from the infamous Watcher House is the scene of the List family murders, one of the most horrific family annihilations in American history. So what do you think? Let's go to Westfield. Hi there, I'm Amy, and this is True Crime Recaps. So. Let's start with the infamous Watcher House. When Derek and Maria Broaddus closed on their dream home to the tune of $1.3 million, they never expected they would be getting a stalker along with it. The house was built in 1905. Along with its many rooms and bathrooms, it had a massive wraparound porch, gorgeous landscaping, four fireplaces. It was one of the nicest houses on the boulevard which was one of the best streets in the affluent community of Westfield. That's about 20 miles away from New York City. Yes, the house was expensive, but they figured it was worth it. For one thing, Westfield was safe. It was one of the top 30 safest in the nation at that time. And Maria had grown up there and loved it. And they had three young kids, all under the age of 10. They were envisioning a long life in the house with their kids and grandkids, now, before we go any further, and this story is a doozy, but let me just give credit where credit is due. For years, information about what actually happened at the house came from local lore and gossip. The broaduses didn't share too many details publicly until they were approached by writer Reeves Weedman from The Cut in 2018. Now, a lot of the story you're about to hear is based on his interviews and research on the people involved. All right, so with that said, close your binds. Maybe grab a Bible. Things are about to get real creepy. Derek stopped by the house to check on some renovation work only three days after they closed on it. In the mailbox was a white card addressed to the new owner. The note inside went like this. Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. How did you end up here? Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? Eh." Okay. It gets creepier from here. I'm going to put the creepy letter voice back on. All right, here we go. 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now. And as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s. My father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. I asked the woods to bring me young blood and it looks like they listened. Okay. All right. So the woods refers to John and Andrea Woods. Those are the people who sold the house to the Broadduses. And it goes on. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think there are three that I have counted. Are there more on the way? Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. Who am I? There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Look out any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. And here's how it finishes up. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. Signed. The Watcher. Well, holy shit. Bring on the holy water and the exorcisms. Derek called the police. They didn't know what to say. I mean, the Watcher hadn't actually broken in or attacked him. It was just creepy as hell, but what could they do? So he and Maria contacted the woods. That couple had lived in the house for 23 years. They claimed they'd never had a letter like that until a few days before they moved out. They said they got one letter from this watcher, but they threw it away. They haven't shared exactly what it said, but they did say that the comments about watching the place for hundreds of years, that was similar, and the writer sort of thanked them for taking such good care of the place. Hmm? But they didn't get danger vibes from it. They thought it was strange. You know, that's it. they never felt in danger. They barely even locked their doors, which, come on, people, lock your doors. But they claimed that the letter wasn't worth mentioning to their buyers. Okay. So you can imagine how completely freaked out Derek and Maria were. At this point, they hadn't moved in yet. They were having some work done on the place, you know, painting, so on. But now with this insane letter, they didn't know what their next move should be. But they didn't stay away from the place completely. Derek said they came by often, that they met some of the neighbors. They even gave one couple a tour of the house. And the wife said something like, It'll be nice to have some young blood in the neighborhood. He almost had a heart attack. And who was that woman? I don't know. Moving on. A few days later, their contractor got to the house early in the morning and found his sign had been ripped out of the yard during the night. But the police told Derek and Maria to keep quiet about the letters since any one of their neighbors could potentially be the watcher so as they're gathering information on the people around them they're also trying to learn as much about the letter as they can like where did it come from who could have written it were there any clues to gain from the way it was written and it turns out that the letter and all the letters that followed went through kearney a post office hub about 30 minutes north of westfield the first letter was postmarked on june 4th 2014 before the details of the sale might have been found online, and the Woods never had a for sale sign up, so the deal wasn't necessarily public knowledge. Someone would have had to have known that they were selling and that the new owners would be doing renovations before they sent the letter. Two weeks after they got the first letter, another one arrived. This one addressed Derek, Maria, and the kids by name. It said, I am pleased to know your names now and the name of the young blood you have brought to me. You certainly say their names often. Apparently one of the kids was using an easel on a hidden side porch, but the watcher must have seen them because the letter mentions it specifically and asked if she was the artist in the family. Hmm? And it goes on to say, quote, 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all of the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in, it will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The house is crying from all of the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. I mean, come on. They're literally doing some painting. Not that much, but all right. Okay. So back to the letter. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The 1960s were a good time when I ran from room to room, imagining the life with the rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old and so did my father, but he kept watching until the day he died. And now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families. And now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day you know I will be watching. <laughs> so that's terrifying. And then a few weeks after that, they got a third letter. This one got right to the point. It said, where have you gone to? 657 Boulevard is missing you. Uh-huh. At this point, they were staying with Maria's parents. I mean, would you move into a house at that point? But, okay, no, I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking the same thing. It cost them $1.3 million plus the renovations. I mean, they were torn too. Mostly they just wanted to figure out who was writing the letters. So they told their contractors they were possibly having some issues with a neighbor, and to keep their eyes open. They hired a private investigator to look into the neighbors, and Derek even reached out to a couple of FBI agents that he knew personally. Get this. Apparently, one of them was the agent that the Clary Starling character from The Silence of the Lambs was based on. So that's impressive, right? But They didn't get too far either. They did get a DNA signature off the envelope, and they offered up a possible profile based on the way that the letters were written. So, first of all, the DNA was from a woman. Hmm? Now, does that mean that the watcher is a woman? Maybe? The letters were also typed, even the signature. Only the envelope was handwritten. There was no return address course but based on some of the typos and phrases they thought the writer might be older it sounds it sounds kind of older right there were double spaces between the sentences and you know that's the way that people learned to type back in the 60s and 70s and then they pointed out that the sentence structure suggested someone who might be an avid reader their theory was maybe it was someone who had worked for one of the previous owners someone who was familiar with the house obviously very familiar over the years, and maybe bitter that they couldn't afford to live there. Other theories involved real estate revenge. Maybe the Watcher was someone who had wanted to buy the house from the Woods and lost out to Derek and Maria. But the Woods told them that the two other offers had fallen off, which is why Derek and Maria had got it. One of the painters working on the house told them he'd seen an elderly neighbor from the house behind them, sitting in a lawn chair near the tree line, staring at their house, 657. As it happens, that family had been there for 47 years. The family's daughter had married a boy who grew up in 657 Boulevard before the house was sold to the woods. Now, next door was another family with deep roots in the community the Langfords. The house had a view of the enclosed porch where one of their kids was using that easel mentioned in the letter, and the family had lived there since the early 60s. In 2014, when this was all happening, the adult children and their elderly mother still lived there. Their father had died 12 years earlier. One of their sons, a man named Michael, was known to be mentally ill, but harmless neighbors described him as like a boo radley character some neighbors did mention that they'd seen him looking in windows in the past but again he was thought to be childlike you know not dangerous his sister also still lived there she was a real estate agent and according to reeve weedman's article the police did speak to them and the brodus's investigator even tested the langford sisters' dna against what was found on the envelope and No match. But obviously, they also said that they knew nothing about it. And without a confession or any hard evidence, no one could say for sure if they actually did or didn't. Incidentally, the elderly mother and her son, Michael, both passed away from natural causes in 2020. And of course, you should know that the Langfords, again, are like, this wasn't us. So going back to 2014, you're probably wondering about security systems... Fingerprints, get a dog, something. Well, Derek said that they did install cameras, but the letters were being delivered by the post office, you know, not by hand. So unless and until the watcher actually approached the house, there's nothing to see. But they did have their investigator watching who might be watching the house. Though late one night, A suspicious car stopped in front of the house, and it was traced to a girl who was dating a guy who lived nearby. Now, the guy was into what she called some really dark video games. And one character he played was named The Watcher. According to this article, he never showed up for police interviews. And as far as I can tell, nothing ever came of it. So that's strange. Now, it's hard to tell what order the rest of the letters came in but here's what another one said 657 boulevard is turning on me it is coming after me i don't understand why what spell did you cast on it it used to be my friend and now it is my enemy quick side note here they did actually hire a priest to come in and bless the house which you know would have been my first my first call. But so who knows? Maybe that's the spell that this watcher person was mentioning. Anyway, back to the letter. I am in charge of 657 Boulevard. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me the house needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep. Stop changing it and let it alone. By December 2014, they still hadn't moved in, even though they'd been paying the mortgage for six months. And the neighbors were beginning to wonder what was going on, especially after word got around that the Broaddises were now trying to sell it without ever living in it. They started off with an asking price of about 1.5 million, more than what they'd paid, but they'd done some, you know, light renovations and they were hoping to at least break even, maybe even get out of the situation a little bit ahead. But they got some offers, but they told their realtor to disclose the issue with the watcher. They didn't give prospective buyers the letters. They said that they were planning to do that only if an offer was accepted. But they did explain what was going on to serious buyers. Every one of them dropped out when they heard this story. So as they started to realize how hard it was going to be to sell this place, they started to feel A little bitter at the woods, you know, for not telling them about the wacky letter that they had got from the watcher before they closed on the house. So in June of 2015, they filed a lawsuit against them for not disclosing the issue. So legally, they seized on the wording from some of the letters claiming ownership of the house. You know, the whole, like, I've been in control of the house since the 20s, 60s, whatever it was. That kind of language is why they named the Woods, the escrow company, and even the watcher in this lawsuit. And that's how this story went public. It was just so weird that even without all the details of the letters, like you're hearing now, the story went nationwide. Ultimately, the lawsuit was dismissed, which meant the Broaddus's still needed to do something about the house. And of course, by now... Everyone in town knew something strange was going on. So things were only going to get worse. Derek thought maybe they could tear it down, divide the large lot and sell it to developers to build two new houses. Unfortunately, the lot was, it was huge, but it was a little too small to be able to divide it in half without the city council's approval. And when the community heard that the historic house was in danger of being, you know, flattened to the ground, They fought it and the motion was denied in 2016. And then they got one more letter in the mail. This one was angrier. It said, violent winds and bitter cold to the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. You wonder who the watcher is? "'Turn around, idiots. Maybe you even spoke to me, one of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the Watcher could be. Or maybe you do know and are too scared to tell anyone.' Good move. I walked by the news trucks when they took over my neighborhood and mocked me. I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers of the Boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved Saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. And then it threatened them with this quote Maybe a car accident, maybe a fire, maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away but makes you feel sick day after day after day. After day, maybe the mysterious death of a pet, loved ones suddenly die, planes and cars and bicycles crash, bones break, and it was signed "All hail the Watcher." Good God! Now by this time, Derek was beside himself. The couple felt like the town had turned on them. They were deep in debt, trying to pay the mortgage on this house that they weren't even living in. So he got a little bit mental himself. He hand-delivered anonymous letters to some of their most vocal opponents that year, and it was not a great look for him. He he recognizes that. But here's what happened to Derek and Maria today. They did manage to sell the house in 2019, but they only got around $900,000 for it. The new owners have not reported receiving any new letters, but they're staying pretty quiet about the whole thing in general. So there you go. And there are plenty of theories about who the watcher actually is, even though none of them have actually been proven yet. This person is still out there somewhere. So let's get into it. Theories. One major theory is that the Broadduses made the whole thing up to try and get out of the deal or to drum up interest for a movie like the Amityville house. Incidentally, they did sell the rights to Netflix and a movie starring Naomi Watts is scheduled for release in 2022. But, I don't know. I don't know, you guys. Why spend so much money? Why go to so much trouble to do something like that? If they wanted out of the deal, they wouldn't have disclosed the letters. And if they wanted to sell movie rights, why not just live in the house and maintain the story? It makes no sense. Well, another theory centered on the house behind 657 Boulevard, the house with the lawn chairs on the property line facing the Broadduses, especially since that last letter said, turn around, idiots. Hmm. Of course, that family also denied knowing anything about it. And coincidentally, they sold the house to an LLC not long before 657 sold. So they're not there anymore. As far as the history of the house goes, it seems relatively normal, not super creepy. And I was searching for super creepy, but here's what I got. It was built in 1905 by a developer named Harry Lincoln Russell. He and his family lived there until 1914. That's when they sold it to William Davies. He was the mayor of Westfield in the late 30s. Interestingly, he sold the house to his son for a single dollar, according to Refinery29. And here's where it gets strange. The article goes on to say that the house changed hands five times over the course of eight years. Each time, the purchase price was listed as a single dollar. In 1955, it was sold to the family who ultimately sold it to the Woods in 1990. Did they buy it for a dollar? Uh, that's not clear. But we do know that the Woods sold it to the broadest family, Obviously, for much more than a single dollar. And that is the story. To this day, no one knows who the Watcher is. Did they die? Did they move away? Are they still out there watching and waiting? Now, 40 years before the Watcher popped up, Westfield was buzzing about a different house of horrors. Just 10 minutes away from the Watcher house on the boulevard. I'm talking about the List family mansion. Scene of one of the most horrific crimes in U.S. history. John List might just be the most horrifying family killer in American history. The bodies of his wife and three children lay undiscovered and alone for a month after he brutally murdered them and disappeared into a new life and a new identity. All four of them had been carefully zipped up into Boy Scout sleeping bags and laid one next to the other on the floor of the family mansion ballroom, staring up at a glorious Tiffany stained glass skylight. Two floors above them, the body of his elderly mother was lying in her little granny flat kitchen. John cut himself out of every one of the family photos before he closed the house up, blasted organ music through the intercom system, and vanished. The only thing he left behind was a handwritten confession laying on the desk in his study. John List is the boogeyman of Westfield, New Jersey. He was a killer, yes, but he became more than that. As NJ.com put it, The man was a lurking, dark, creep-of-a-ghost story that started in one of Westfield's most exclusive neighborhoods on Tuesday, November 9th, 1971. The List family had moved into the 19-room mansion known as Breeze Knoll six years earlier, in 1965, Everyone thought John was making good money working as a vice president and comptroller at a bank in Jersey City. It's about a half an hour away. To anyone who bothered to notice, he appeared to be an ordinary, buttoned-up banker type. His wife, Helen, was a homemaker. Their kids, Patricia, John Jr., and Freddie, were 16, 15, and 13 His mother, Alma, lived with them too. She was 85. They seemed like a pretty typical upper middle class family, although they weren't as friendly as most of their neighbors in the wealthy community. The truth is, John had a reputation for being strict and a bit of a bore. He taught Sunday school at a nearby Lutheran church, and rumor has it he was so straight laced he mowed the lawn wearing his suit and tie. A former neighbor told NJ.com that when the family moved in, her father took a freshly baked pie over to say hello, and John cracked the door open just a little and said, we don't socialize. He took the pie, though. Behind that closed door, things were darker than they seemed. His uptight attitude made him so unlikable, he'd been fired from his job at the bank, unbeknownst to his family, and he couldn't get another one. They were about to lose everything, but John was pretending to go to work every day. In reality, he was job hunting and job stressing. It wasn't just his lack of work he was worried about, though. He thought his family was pulling away from God. He'd been raised to be deeply religious. In his eyes... His wife, Helen, was spending her days drinking, his mother was a burden, and the kids were becoming rebellious teenagers, especially his oldest, Patricia. She wanted to be an actress when she grew up, so (laughs) that's not great john wasn't having any of it between the threat of financial ruin and losing his family's mortal souls to the devil he decided the best thing he could do would be to send them to heaven himself helen was his first victim he shot her in the back of the head in the kitchen his mother alma was next she was killed on the third floor that's where she stayed until the police found them a month later He moved Helen into the ballroom and he cleaned up the kitchen. The week before the shootings, he'd stopped their mail at the post office, called their church and the kids' schools to say they'd be gone for a while. He gave them some excuse about visiting a sick family member. And he would later claim that he was thinking about killing himself too, but he didn't because he was afraid that he wouldn't get into heaven if he did. But have you ever heard something more premeditated. I mean, his plan was to give himself a massive head start and keep the bodies hidden as long as possible. So with his wife and mother lying dead, he made himself lunch before he headed to the bank to cash out what was left in their account. And then he waited for the kids to come home from school. Patricia and Freddie were the first to walk in. They were shot in the back of the head like their mother and grandmother. And John moved them into the ballroom too. Now, John Jr., who is supposedly his favorite, had a soccer game after school that day. So John Sr. drove over to watch the game and give him a ride home after. When they walked in the house, he turned on him the way he had the others. But John Jr. fought back. I mean, as much as a 15-year-old can fight back against a grown man with a gun, so... His death was the most gruesome because of it. His father shot him almost 10 times in the chest and face. Then he dragged him into the ballroom with the rest of his family. He bundled them up into sleeping bags, cleaned up the house, threw the bloody rags in the garbage, turned all the lights on, the temperature way down, and blasted organ music through the house intercom system. A five-page just deranged confession letter was found in his study. In it, John told his pastor what he'd done and why. An excerpt from it published in the book Murderers in New Jersey, The Horrific True Stories of the Garden State Killers goes like this, quote, I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. True, we could have gone bankrupt and gone on welfare, but that brings me to my next point. Knowing the type of location what one would have to live in if they were poor, plus a bad environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing they were on welfare was just more than I thought they should and could endure. And according to the same book, his confessional had a P.S. It supposedly said P.S. Mother is in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. Thanks, son. Interestingly, before we move on with this, if he only would have sold that Tiffany stained glass skylight, they could have gotten more than enough money to keep them solvent. What? What? So before he vanished from Breeze Knoll, he cut his image out of every family photograph just to make it harder for the cops to ID him. Back in the days when there was no digital footprint, right? He was an only child, so there was not really anyone else in the family with pictures to give the police when they showed up 29 days later. Some reports say the neighbors called them when they noticed the lawn wasn't mowed and the house lights were burning out. Others say Helen's oldest married daughter from a previous relationship got suspicious and came calling only to stumble on the horrific scene. But still other reports claim it was Patricia's drama teacher that came looking for her. But when the first officers arrived, they radioed for backup saying, you better send help there's been a mass murder. That was December 7th, 1971. Less than a year later, Breeze Knoll burned to the ground in a mysterious fire. The only thing left was the cellar. A year after the murders, almost to the day, the property was auctioned off and before too long, another home went up in its place and a new family moved in. But still to this day, it's known around Westfield as the List House but the story isn't over. By the time the bodies were found, John List no longer existed. He took on a new identity, one Robert P. Clark of Denver, Colorado. He took the name from a Bob Clark he'd known in college. So how did John slash Bob find his way to Denver? Well, here's what happened. After he left the house, he drove to JFK, airport in New York City, about an hour or so away, but he didn't take a flight anywhere. That was just a ruse to throw off the manhunt. He actually took a train to Michigan, and from there he went on to Colorado. His plan was to start over with a new family, this time... He swore he'd get it right. Yes, he was on the FBI Most Wanted list, and they had been able to get a couple of pictures of him for the wanted flyers. They were hanging in post offices up and down the East Coast. But all the way out in Colorado, Bob Clark was an active member of the Lutheran Church. He even delivered food and smiles to shut-ins. His first job in Colorado was as a fry cook at a Holiday Inn. He eventually found a job as a comptroller at a paper goods company outside of Denver. He told people he was from Michigan and he kept to himself. As you can imagine. In 1977, though, he met the woman that would later become his second wife, Dolores Miller. She, of course, only knew what he had told her. He said he was a widower with no children and he claimed his wife had died of cancer. But you know what they say? No matter how far you run, there you are. And just like before, John slash Bob had trouble keeping a job. Dolores was the one paying the bills while he kept the house. He finally got work as an accountant near Richmond, Virginia. The couple moved back to the East Coast in 1988. Now, by that time, the manhunt for him was long over, and he was probably figured he was in the clear. And he was. He was. Until America's Most Wanted aired an episode about the List family murders in 1989. It was the oldest case they'd ever covered. Since the most recent photo of John List was 18 years old, the show worked with a sculptor to create a bust of the way they believed he might look by the late 80s, you know, when the show was airing, complete with his signature horn-rimmed glasses. Well, they hit it out of the park. According to the New York Times, about 22 million people saw the best of him in that episode. And one of those people was an old friend of Dolores's from Denver. She tipped off the cops. And after they convinced Dolores that her husband, Bob, was actually a mass murderer named John List... Well, she pointed them toward his office, and that's where they grabbed him in June of 1989, 18 years after he annihilated his first family. Now, the jig obviously was up, but he wouldn't admit it. He actually insisted he was Bob Clark. How we thought he could keep that up is beyond my comprehension, and it didn't take them long to verify his identity with his fingerprints. Now, John List had served in the Army for a short time, so wasn't hard to do, but he kept up the lie for months. He refused to admit he was the killer until early 1990, and even then he had excuses. He claimed the murders weren't his fault because he had PTSD from his time in the army a psychiatrist at his trial begged to differ. She pointed out that his PTSD didn't stop him from going on to lead a happy life with another woman for almost two decades. And he claimed the confession letter he left couldn't be used against him because it was addressed to his pastor. So it should have been confidential. Well, he tried every trick in the book to avoid justice, but it didn't work. And in April of 1990, he got the max five life sentences. He died from pneumonia at St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey in March of 2008. He was 82. But here's a bizarre fact for you. After the murders were discovered, people noticed that John List looked a lot like the mysterious D.B. Cooper, the infamous hijacker who jumped out of a commercial airplane with a parachute and $20,000 in cash somewhere between Seattle and Reno in... November 1971, two weeks after John shot his family, but before anyone knew anything was wrong. That's some timing, huh? The FBI thought so too. They questioned him about the hijacking after his arrest, but he always denied knowing anything about it. So, what do you think? Could this mass murderer also be the notorious D.B. Cooper? Well, I personally love the Adams family. Are you surprised? So when I heard his creator was from Westfield, I couldn't wait to find out more. Charles Adams was born there in 1912. He was an only child, and it sounds like he kind of always had a macabre sense of humor, but a happy childhood, he says. As a kid, he loved going to the nearby cemetery. He famously called it cozy, a place where one could think about what it would be like to be dead. Yeah. As the story goes, he broke into a creepy old house on Dudley Avenue. According to various reports, in the old carriage house behind it, he drew a life-sized skeleton in chalk. The town later named it Dudley Adams. That house and the house on Elm Street, because of course that's where his he and his wife lived for decades, they're the inspiration for the creepy, kooky Adams family mansion. He grew up to work as a cartoonist for The New Yorker, which is where the Adams Family first appeared in 1938. He died in 1988, but his creation went on to be a hit TV show with movies, cartoons, and a Broadway musical. And get this fun fact. In the early 70s, Jodie Foster was the voice of Pugsley in the Saturday morning cartoon. What? Today, Westfield fully owns its heritage. Oh, well, some of it not the list family stuff or the watcher house stuff not that but the adams family stuff yes they are all in in fact every october when there's not you know a global pandemic happening Westfield hosts adams fest to celebrate all things adams family cool right i feel like we need to go to this someone make a plan send me the details And that is your recap. Thank you so much for listening. If you like getting twice the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to us if you would subscribe and give us a five-star review. It only takes a second, but it really helps us grow the show. Thank you so much. And until next time, take care.